Revolution is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the internet and technology and how they're shaping culture and changing every aspect of our lives. How it's glorious and awe-inspiring, but can also have a dark side and maybe how we can prevent some of its abuses. In this episode, Leilani Albano is back and is joined by Aaron Mackey, the staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And they talk about the unethical practice of wireless companies selling our location data. And in a later part of the show, I'll be joined by Jessica Alter, the Tech for Campaign's founder and board chair. Here's a bit about what Tech for Campaign does from Jessica herself. We make software that gets used by campaigns, and we also provide them tech and digital talent to use on their campaigns via our community of 12,000 and growing tech and digital volunteers. And we'll talk about some of the goals of Tech for Campaigns, and it isn't just about those big presidential elections. But first, COVID-19 is dominating the conversation just about everywhere. But how will it change culture in the months and years to come? Lydia Lawrenson of The New Modality, who covers culture for Digital Village, is joined by The Economist Tyler Cowan to talk about the potential cultural shifts due to COVID-19 and why he's still optimistic. Listen to this. This is Lydia Lawrenson. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of The New Modality, a new publication and community about experiments and culture. We're going to be covering culture for Digital Village. I'm here with Tyler Callen, who is a professor at George Mason University and also a well-known blogger at the blog Marginal Revolution. Do you have a way of thinking about what your job in the world is? My official title is Professor of Economics, but I think of myself as an infovore, or maybe sometimes an information collector someone just trying to take in inputs from as many different parts of life as possible and maybe make sense of them for my own curiosity, my own selfishness. So I'm always trying to interact and always trying to read more or travel more or see the next movie. And then there's a stream of outputs that, that comes from that. I sometimes say I specialize in being a generalist, and in a way that's the greatest specialization of all. So I don't think of myself as any one of those things. I think of myself as as trying to do synthesis in a lot of different areas. One of the things that's obviously on everyone's mind immediately is coronavirus. And I'm curious about how you see its impact over the long term. I think there are some immediate obvious effects like events closing down and potential quarantine in different parts of the world. I wonder what you would project in terms of what that's going to mean for culture or if there's going to be any unexpected effects or effects that you think that people aren't thinking about right now. We're chatting on March 9th, to be clear. So much we do not know. But I think most large-scale cultural performances will cease within a week or two, most likely. And a lot of those theater companies or symphony orchestras, they may never quite come back. Because even if the coronavirus ceases to be a problem within, say, three months, people won't know it's not coming back. They'll be more aware of the dangers of sinking a lot of capital into staging live events. Customers will be more and more used to Netflix or YouTube or Spotify. So I think the audience taste will shift. And sometimes you have a big sudden event. And what it really does is carry along with it 
a longer-term structural trend that was underway anyway. So I think the outlook for live performance in front of large audiences, I'm very sorry to say, is fairly negative at the moment. I'm into the future. Will people still go to comedy clubs two years from now? Well, some will, but maybe attendance will be 60% of what it was two months ago. Do you think there will be other effects that we aren't thinking about right now? I think online education will get a big boost. People will realize it's often as good as going to a class with a boring professor who doesn't meet with the students anyway, and that probably will be permanent. How people do dating, I'm not sure how that will change. Somehow connecting with a stranger will probably is higher, but certainly will be seen as higher. You may over time have people have a kind of time stamp as to when they're uh, virus-free, but that risk will just be in people's minds. So you may have clubs that like try to internalize safe people getting together or people who have had the virus. If that, in fact, means you're immune for the future, we don't even know that yet. But say that's the case, there'll be like proof you had the virus. All of this will change. Depends on the details, but we're just beginning to think it through. And uh, the whole notion of how virtual space relates to what is sometimes called meat space, I think we're in for big upheavals. We derive so much joy from just interacting in physical spaces, doing stupid, pointless things, which we pretend are practical errands, but they're really not. And a lot of that will go away and we'll be beings with cabin fever, and that will make us restless and anxious and probably more irritable. We've wondered whether this might be a chance or an opportunity for communities to come together and increase resilience in some way. I think they will. So volunteering to test people, bringing aid and assistance to the elderly who might be having problems or even have the virus, helping people restock. I think there'll be more of an outpouring of cooperation than, say, people going around with shotguns making threats. But it will be very focused, and in some ways it will divide us from each other. It will be the thing we do. It will be a kind of vocation. You'll go and you'll help someone who really needs it, but you won't actually build up a lot of the communities in your life you enjoy. Now, it's worth making that sacrifice, but I don't think it will unambiguously boost community either. The idea of like a San Francisco salon where 20 people get together at mid-sized space and speculate about something, uh, that's really going to be shut down, I would think. I've also been looking at methods of virtual community and virtual gatherings and stuff. I think a lot of those directions haven't been as developed as they could be because meat space is just more fun. But if meat space is off the table, I've been wondering if there's ways to make those places into genuine salons or exchanges of ideas. Skype and Zoom could be much better. So right now they're intended for limited purposes and that's fine. We're using Skype now. It's not a problem. But you wonder, say, if there were four of us, how would this call work? And I think you'll see more startups uh, solving those problems. The idea of what is synchronous or how do you sense body language will in some ways be communicated through online media and it will be a closer substitute for the meeting itself. So in the long run, there'll be fewer meetings, fewer face-to-face interviews. Probably people from distant locales, other countries, they'll have a better chance in relative terms. But they can't be there. It's like, oh, well, here's the new souped-up, super-effective Zoom call. Let's just do that. So it will have some egalitarian features. So it's kind of a, a big restart on many issues of life. Do you see any reason for optimism? Well, I think there are big reasons for optimism. If you just take the world in general and ask a simple question, are there more talented people today working to solve problems? There are many more by a large order of magnitude compared to 20 or 30 years ago. 
So there's China, India, Nigeria, so many places in the world where there's more opportunity. And those people are creators, scientists, innovators, migrants, whatever. So we've just mobilized so, so, so much more human talent. And that possibly will outweigh all the crazy things going on. I'm not sure of that. But I, if I had to bet my money, I would bet on optimism. Yes. And I don't see anything ending that. And a lot of the empowerment is the Internet. And I think the Internet will actually get a lot better at finding those people. Like, who's really smart? Who's potentially a great writer? Who's potentially a great programmer? We're just scratching the surface for using the Internet to find and mobilize those individuals. Whatever it is you've ended up doing has happened because of the Internet, right? That will be systematized, more commoditized. There'll be more formal search. We'll bring machine learning and AI to bear on this. So the people in, say, West Africa who have the most potential to do a certain thing, their chance of being found will be much higher really pretty soon. I'm here with Tyler Cowan of Marginal Revolution. If people wanted to follow you on Twitter, you would be at Tyler Cowan. Yes, C-O-W-E-N. You can Google my name also and get to it all. That was the New Modalities' Lydia Lawrenson, joined by Tyler Cowan, the economist and writer of the blog Marginal Revolution. You can find out more about what Lydia's working on at thenewmodality.com. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. Up next, Leilani Albano speaks with Aaron Mackey, the staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, about the unethical practice of wireless companies selling our location data. Listen to this. Hi, I'm Leilani Albano, reporting for Digital Village Radio. I'm speaking to Aaron Mackey, staff attorney with the EFF, which has been looking into the practice of wireless companies selling our location data. What are wireless carrier companies doing with our location data, and how widespread is this practice? Beginning since about 2018, we've known that all major wireless communications carriers have been disclosing customers' location data without their consent and largely without their knowledge. And this has resulted in countless downstream parties being able to have that information at their fingertips and has resulted in the ability of bounty hunters, stalkers, debt collectors, even creditors, banks, and landlords being able to find your location. What big name companies have been involved in this? Oh, public reporting has shown that all of the four major carriers, Sprint, AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile, were at one point in time disclosing their customers' location data. What kind of risks does this practice pose for users? It seems very dangerous to have your location data out there. Yeah, it can be extremely dangerous. It can be both incredibly invasive of your privacy, but also dangerous. So our locations and our movements throughout the day, we tell our own personal story. So when AT&T or another provider knows your location, they, they have to know that and with good reason because they want to follow you and make sure that they deliver services to your device. But at the same time, they're collecting it. And if they disclose it, it can be incredibly revealing about where you go, where you work, where you worship, who you visit, who you associate with, and so on. And so that can be deeply revealing of your personal associations as well as your political or religious associations. But then also it can be dangerous. So in the context of intimate partner violence or stalking or harassment, the ability for anyone to find your location and to know it with a pretty high degree of accuracy can be very dangerous for a wide range of individuals who have specific threats. 
Knowing that the FCC knew about this at least since 2018, one would think that with all the risks involved, that legislators would have put the reins on this a long time ago, but they haven't. What are your thoughts? It has been frustrating to be basically saying that since the first disclosure and asking why the FCC has not, you know, immediately intervened, investigated, put a halt to it. We, of course, were very happy to hear recently that FCC Chairman Ajit Pai had announced that at least one major carrier was going to be subject to an enforcement action by the FCC as a result of this real-time disclosure of customers' location data, but it took entirely too long. And it left, I think, customers vulnerable in the general public. This was a public safety hazard, and we would have hoped that the FCC would have taken more immediate action. What does this signify? It seems like the online world is the wild, wild west in terms of anything goes. There just doesn't seem to be any regulation. Is this reflective of that or is this something particular to location data? Right. So back in 1996, Congress actually passed a consumer privacy law as it relates to the location data that telephone carriers, both landline and cellular carriers, have access to. And this was a recognition that location data, as well as other data, like who you call and when you call them and for how long, is very sensitive. And that um, as a result of that, Congress set up a feature of it requires the carriers to get customers' opt-in consent before that information is disclosed. And of course, as we know from countless stories about other consumer privacy disclosures and other harms, this is not the case in almost every other area. So Generally speaking, there's either no regulation or an opt-out regime. In the context of the Communications Act, it requires specifically that you opt in to the disclosure of your location data, and it also gives the FCC the means to enforce that provision, but it gives individuals as well the right to file lawsuits as a result of failure of a cell carrier to require that they, you know, your opt-in affirmative consent. So this is an enforcement issue. We have the laws in the books, but it's not enforced. That's absolutely right. Yes, this is just an inaction by a law that's already on the books and already provides strong privacy protections in terms of requiring opt-in consent and allowing individuals to sue as a result of those violations. So who were the first entities to receive this location data without users' consent? So the first entities to receive this were these third parties that we call data aggregators, and they appear to be able to just obtain access for reasons that are not entirely clear, but might have had something to do with helping carriers perform legitimate functions of disclosing customers' locations, such as when you're broken down on the side of the road and you call AAA and they can send a tow truck. These third-party data aggregators would help facilitate that. But what we know from reporting is that those third parties turned around and they sold access to the carrier's location data to a variety of other downstream third parties, which ultimately led to bounty hunters, debt collectors, and others being able to access this data for very small amounts of money and and find individuals basically just by querying people's phone numbers. Are there any legitimate reasons for having or selling someone's location data without consent? Without their consent, no, because the, the law requires the uh, carriers to get the customer's consent before disclosing it. But there are legitimate use cases for when a customer, we think they would want that. And the most common would be, say, again, like if you were broken down on the side of the road and you didn't know, maybe you were in a different state and you were traveling, you didn't know exactly where you were, 
and you call AAA, and AAA says, we'd like to send a tow truck. Where are you? And I, I don't know where I am. And so then they can ask, can we get your location data? And, and that is affirmative consent, right? You have consented to the disclosure of your location data, and it's for a purpose of sending a AAA tow truck. And so those are reasons in which there are beneficial uses to have this information disclosed. But the key here is that the law requires that the individual be empowered to make those decisions themselves about when and how they disclose that information and that the carriers have to get that affirmative opt-in consent before it can be disclosed. What is your organization proposing to do on this issue? Do we need to go by the way of Europe and put out these comprehensive laws? So after becoming aware of these disclosures. Last summer, EFF, along with our co-counsel, a law firm named Pierce Bainbridge, we filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of all California AT&T customers against AT&T for the disclosure of their customers' location data without their customers' knowledge and consent. And our main cause of action is the same federal law that prohibits that disclosure without customers' consent. And we're both seeking damages as well as an injunction that would require a court to order AT&T to stop the disclosure of its customers' data, as well as for AT&T to take affirmative steps to go back and mitigate the harm from the disclosure of customers' data that has already gone out. And also that AT&T has to take steps to revise its approach to how it talks about how it safeguards customer data. Now, as far as your second question about what should be done, we at EFS believe that it is long past overdue for Congress to pass a federal comprehensive consumer privacy legislation that would govern all the personal information that we all disclose to a wide range of services that we all use every day just to live, right? Everything from our email to our internet to the many types of messaging and other services that we rely on and that it would require affirmative opt-in consent you know, before these third parties are able to obtain this data or disclose it, and that it also give consumers a private right of action in the event that someone fails to live up to the requirements of the law. I think there is an appetite for a comprehensive consumer privacy law, whether there's the specific will and political will of, of those who are currently in Congress is another question, but I do think that there is at least bipartisan concern about, you know, the need for a consumer privacy law that would be comprehensive. That was Aaron Mackey, staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I'm Leilani Albano, contributing reporter for Digital Village. Till next time. That was Digital Village contributor Leilani Albano in conversation with Aaron Mackey, staff attorney for the EFF, about wireless companies selling our location data and what the EFF hopes to do about it. You can read more about what the EFF is up to at EFF.org. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. In the last part of the show, I'm joined by Jessica Alter, the co-founder and board chair of Tech for Campaigns. We talk about their origin story, how important state legislatures are, and what their goals are for bringing more progressive candidates to office in 2020. Listen to this. So what was the impetus for creating Tech for Campaigns? Like in 2017, what happened? I had a company I sold and I ended up 
not having to join the acquiring companies or I took a bit of a sabbatical and was really gone for the 2016 election. And in 2017, I came back basically days before Trump was inaugurated. So in quick succession, it was Trump's inauguration, series of terrible executive orders, and then the first Muslim ban. And I think that the Muslim ban really pushed me over the edge to want to do something. And the feeling I had was I'm so frustrated yelling at people who probably already agree with me on social media is not helping and it's not even making me feel better. So what can I do? And the answer to that was, well, let me see if other people are feeling this way and we can start to build tools and offer skill sets to campaigns that need them. I really had no idea at the time what the state of affairs was in politics. We sort of had a hunch that the Democrats weren't as good at digital ads because stuff had been coming out about the 2016 election, how Trump wiped the floor with us on the digital side, but I really didn't know how bad it was. Right. What have you learned since then? I think since then, the the three big things I've learned that tech for campaigns is solving is one, the Democrats are both on an absolute and relative basis, not good at tech and digital and behind the Republicans. So that's number one. Number two, there's no organization that's really around whose main purpose is to handle technology and digital within the Democratic Party. And so at the end of a cycle, everything that gets built and all that knowledge ends up getting thrown away. Nothing subsists or lasts. And you know, if you're in tech, that definitely bothers you. And then the third is all races are important. And eventually we want to be helping any type of race. But we have a particular focus on state legislatures, state houses and state senates, because they're excruciatingly important. Not only are they actually deciding laws on the issues that I see people getting the most animated about, like abortion and gun rights and education and voting rights, those are decided at the state level. But also, importantly, going into 2020, whomever is in control of the state legislature draws the lines at the federal level, the process known as redistricting. So this is basically a time where we have to take back state legislature because it will control at least the next decade of federal outcomes. And so they just have this outsized impact. But because they don't raise a lot of money and they're not as sexy, they just don't get the same attention. And so we focus about 80 percent of our efforts on state legislatures. What are some campaigns that Tech for Campaigns has helped? We've worked on over 200 campaigns in the last two years, and that should grow exponentially this year. But we worked on the Stacey Abrams campaign. We worked on a pretty in-depth data project with them. We worked on the Kendra Horn campaign, who was the member of Congress that flipped a seat that no one thought would flip. We ran her digital ads. We have several campaigns we're working with now that people would recognize that are using our software. I think the real unsung heroes are the state legislative campaigns that if you're not in their state, you probably don't hear them. But we helped in the Maine Senate last year, which flipped. We helped break Republican supermajorities in the Michigan Senate and Pennsylvania. We had historic pickups in Texas and Florida. Texas is one example that all of a sudden people are paying attention to Texas now. It's an important example of like, you have to invest in several cycles. It's 
no state slips in a cycle. So we'll be back in Texas this year helping across the state. 2019, if you're not totally attuned to the political news, was an off-year election, but Virginia flipped. And we had 40 campaigns in Virginia. So both the House and the Senate flipped. We were basically the chosen as a primary digital provider there. So we work with the state caucus and Senate. We worked with 40 campaigns across the House and Senate. It's now flipped. And the impact of that is that, you know, they're going to pass gun safety reform. I think in the news that there was all these rallies, but the reason there's rallies is because Democrats took control and there's going to be like smart gun safety laws passed, things that actually 80% of Virginians want. People are going to get health care. The Equal Rights Amendment could be ratified across the country. So, like, there's just crazy outsized impact. That's even before you get to, oh, yeah, and they're going to be the ones to be able to draw the maps during redistricting and not have the insane partisan gerrymandering. So I'm super proud of helping Stacey Abrams and Kendra Horn and presidential campaign. But I think it's important to note where, like, this crazy impact is at the state level that people get upset about all of these things that happen, like the voting rights laws in Georgia that some think for the reason Stacey Abrams lost, like the abortion bans, I'll call them, in you know Alabama and Missouri and things like that that are happening. These things are 100% happening at the state level. And these are decades-long strategies by the Republicans. And they actually have very little to do with Trump. So it's important for us to help the big candidates, but it's also important for people to realize what's happening all over and particularly at the state legislative level. What is your goal for 2020? Our goal is to be in 15 states. And actually, if you go on our website, techforcampaigns.org, there's a list of all the states we want to be in and basically why. Do we think we can flip them? Do we think they need defending? Are we trying to break a Republican supermajority, which is, you know, where abortion goes to get banned? And then our software can help even more states and more campaigns beyond that. The goal is to help a thousand campaigns between 2019 and 2020 through both our volunteer talent network and our software. And it's incredibly exciting. It's the largest tech effort that we know of on the left. And it's really time that technology and digital no longer takes a backseat to TV and just an analog style of campaigning. It gets prioritized and it gets funded and it is really important to see that happening and starting to happen in 2020. And we're proud to be leading the charge. That was Jessica Alter, the co-founder and board chair of Tech for Campaigns, who provide political campaigns with access to world-class talent, training, and technology to implement digital strategies, powered by a community of over 11,000 volunteers. They're still looking for volunteers to help with this election cycle. So if you're a designer, email marketer, copywriter, engineer, and more, you can find out about volunteer opportunities at techforcampaigns.org. We've covered some potential cultural changes of COVID-19 and how there's reason to be optimistic, but still keep washing your hands. How the EFF is fighting to keep wireless companies from selling our location data. And in some good news outside of what we covered, Chelsea Manning was freed from prison last week. That's it for Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org and clicking audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or come to our website at digitalvillage.org. 
a special thank you to Lydia Lawrenson of The New Modality and Leilani Albano. We're off a fun drive, but you can still show your support for the station. You can donate now and keep glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio going at KPFK. Go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen, and we'll we'll see see you online. online.